Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organisations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Future of Internal Communication. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Catherine Barnard, and sadly, we are missing our co-host, Dominic Walters, for this recording, but I am sure we will still have a very entertaining and insightful conversation. So today, we're here to talk about the transformation opportunity for internal communication. I'm delighted that we're joined by Kevin Green, who is Chief People Officer at First Bus, and myself and Kevin met... We were just trying to remember before we started recording, which we believe was last year, so time goes so fast, a cost of living crisis event where we were talking about the challenges of of communication in these times. And um, I think myself and Kevin shared a very um, similar passion for the point of view of listening and involvement. And I know that Kevin has an extensive career in the people space, as well as many other roles that's going to really help us enlighten this this conversation. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here, Jennifer. Delighted to be here. (laughs) So with that, as I said, you have had an extensive career in this space. So rather than me do that for you, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your career? I'm going to start in the middle. It's always a bit random. So in 2018, uh, finished 10 years as being the chief exec of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, which is a bit like your job, Jenny, for the recruitment industry. So it's a trade body, professional body for the £36 billion recruitment industry. I loved that job, but I spent a lot of time while I was um, uh, the chief exec of the REC, looking at the labour market and spending a lot of time talking to the media because we did two reports every month about what was happening with jobs. So I'm going to use that experience in a moment when we talk about what's going on in the labour market. I then decided I'd sort of done enough of, I'm a man of a certain age, I thought I'd done enough of full-time work. So I went off to do to write my book, which is called Competitive People Strategy, which was nominated for Business Book of the Year in 2020. I loved doing that. And I did a, I took a plural career where I was working with six or seven predominantly private equity backed, fast growth, medium sized business. So I had a really good time. I was enjoying that. And I took on a bit of consultancy work for an organization. And lo and behold, I found myself back in the chief people officer job, partly because it's, um, First bus is part of a FTSE 250, 14,000 people in the organization, 900 million, and we're going through a massive transformation. So I'm not an HR director that um, sort of likes the status quo. I tend to do the transformational stuff. So earlier in my career, before the REC, I was HR director at Royal Mail as we went through the big transformation with Alan Layton and Adam Crozier pre-privatization. So I like businesses where real people doing real jobs, posties and bus drivers, engineers, but they need to change and they need to change at pace. So 
that's my sort of career history. I've always been either a business person. I ran my own business. I've been an entrepreneur, been on the board of FTSE 250. So I've done lots of things, but always at the interface of change, business and people. Thanks, Kevin. That is really interesting. And I just want to immediately pick up on the point that you've made about the helicopter view that you've had of the UK labour market. As we're recording, we know that we've got the most complex labour market that we've perhaps had yet. We're also facing into another reporting of peak inflation numbers. We know our government wants to reduce inflation and wants to get more people back to work. We know that the cost of living crisis is ongoing. That's where you guys bonded and met. Tell me, I mean, I spend my time looking at this stuff, but I love to also chew the fat on it. What are your primary observations about the labour market that we've got at the moment? There's a number of things that have sort of coalesced in the last couple of years. And we've had a tight labour market for about six or seven years. And when I mean tight, I mean, it's been difficult for employers to find people to fill their jobs. But that has been exacerbated by both Brexit and COVID and now the cost of living crisis. So historically, you know, we've been bringing in a lot of people net benefit of 300,000 a year in terms of immigration over a very long period. Now, that's been closed off because of Brexit. We've got an ageing population, so people falling out of employment. We've then had COVID, which has exacerbated the issue of people retiring early, and we've got more people not participating in the labour market because of ill health. What all of that means is we've got three different shortages all playing out at the same time. They're quite different. So the first one's a labour shortage, and that is where we have a shortage of people that don't need skills, don't need experience, because an employer can teach them that. But we need the work ethic and people to turn up. So the types of industries I'm talking about, agriculture, manufacturing, call centres, bus drivers, you know, I can go on, Uh, hospitality, travel, all of those types of business. And what we're really looking for, let's use a coffee shop barista. You know, there's four things in that job. You need to be able to make a great coffee, be able to take payment, understand what's in the glass case, and be nice to the customer. You can teach someone that in two days. Within a week, they can be competent. Within two weeks, they can be a high performer. That's about a labor shortage. We haven't got enough people wanting to do those jobs or available to do those jobs. We have more vacancies than we have people that are unemployed, right? So we're at full employment. Secondly, we've got some deep-seated problems with skill shortages. Now, skill shortages have got a very clear definition. That's where you haven't got enough people with the, the skills, experience, and qualifications to do the jobs that are available in the labor market. And when I started at the REC in 2008, seems like a lifetime ago, there was about four or five areas, digital, technology, engineering, and there was uh, some medical areas. But what we've got now is about 70 areas of skill shortage where we haven't got enough people to do the jobs that are available. Quite a lot in the public sector, but also across a lot of the professions. So we've got a labor problem, we've got a skills problem, and then we've got a talent problem. And a talent problem is another area that employers are struggling with. That is basically we need people with a, a skill set. I don't know, let's say I'm a you know a finance professional. I'm, But 
this is my definition of talent. So I want them to be professionally qualified, to be an accountant, to be our financial controller. But I also want them to have to be change orientated. I want them to be able to make change happen, to roll up their sleeves, to have a helicopter view, and then also be able to inspire and motivate others. So we have a shortage of talent, skill, and labor. And what we find is many employers have at least one of those. Sometimes they have two. And occasionally, a bit like us at uh, First Bus, we've got all three at play. And that means we've got to be better as employers at retaining people. It's got to be a great culture, great place to work. And we've got to be much better at selling ourselves to the people that we want to hire. So we've got some fundamental, deep-seated problems in our labor market, which are not going to go away anytime soon. So the people issues are now the number one issue. If you look at the survey of KPMG, do of chief execs, it's by far the number one. You know, COVID, economics, all of that, you know, knocked out of the, off the top of the table by talent, skill and labor problems. It is. um, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it is unsurprising because people far more qualified than me have been warning of this predicament for some time. And yet on the other side of the coin, it is totally breathtaking that we've arrived in this mucky old mess. And somebody in my network had pointed just last week to some research from future.now, citing 11.8 million people of working age of employability in the UK lack the digital skills to do their jobs well. And I know, obviously, at the Institute, we've been talking a lot in recent weeks about ChatGPT and the impact that ChatGPT will have on internal communication and the extent to which that will free up capacity to do other things, potentially. It just strikes me, Kevin, that we've got all the information effectively at our fingertips, but we're living in some kind of cognitive dissonance denial phase where too many businesses and business leaders are either ignoring the vital things that need to change or trying to use the same old tools and tactics to fix very new problems. And you guys know, I I look at future of work trends, I see our challenges only amplifying. So I spend my time somewhat in a state of chicken licking alarm. But from your point of view, where do you see the risks and opportunities here? I mean, there's two things. I'm going to talk about business and what we can do to help ourselves and also to help the broader economy and labor market i mean there's a big role for government right i mean let's not beat around the bush you know some of this is self-inflicted you know government policy in relation to education and training is poor and has been for decades of all political parties have never really got this right we're starting to hear some stuff which is quite sensible about lifelong learning and funding people to re-educate and retrain you know most people are going to have multiple jobs and multiple careers in their their, their lifetimes. And, and that means that learning becomes the key skill that we need to give people leaving higher education and schools. And 
our education system hasn't been revised for about 40 years. You can go back to stuff that Ken Robinson was talking about 20 years ago about creativity and how schools should be trying to get people to think about how they learn and, and be much more adaptive and agile and responsive and try things and not worry about failure. So there's the education system. There's the whole thing about how we fund skills and the way that apprentices are set up. There's improvement there. You've then got immigration. So there are many things that government should be doing and could be doing to support the economy that has these type of problems, these human struggles with shortages. Now, let's come to businesses, because what businesses have to do is to have to, they have to think very differently. And I think you're right. So one of the things that I've spent my career doing is talking to business leaders about the people side of their businesses. And if I'm being really honest, one of the reasons I wrote my book is they are piss poor at it, right? I'm not going to use a technical term. They are dreadful. Most people that drive are chief execs or are driving commercial uh, organizations don't really understand the whole people dynamic, what it means to create a great culture, how we have to train and develop people, have co- leaders that are coaches and uh, can create an environment where people are learning, where we actually develop people, where we give great feet. You know, I can go on and on and on. So we've got a fundamental issue at the top of our organizations. That means, I think, for me, that HR and internal communications people have got a huge opportunity, but we're at an inflection point. We've either got to get better and step into this space and be able to win the arguments and demonstrate the value to organizations, or we'll be, we'll be continuing to talk about this in 20 years' time. So I think that's the point. You know, we can wait for government. We might be waiting forever. We can wait for business leaders, but we've got to influence stuff. We've got to be change agents. We've got to be leaders. So that's my agenda, I think, which is, you know, let's think about getting the right leadership teams. Let's have a people strategy, which is really clearly understood, which is invested in. Let's make sure that we have the right capability to be able to deliver the type of culture that I've talked about, because that's what makes businesses sustainable. You find the right people, you develop them, you create the great, the right culture, you get improved productivity, you get less absence, less attrition, you attract new talent and new skills to your organization, and you'll be successful. If you go the other way, you're always going to see it as a commodity and a cost, and you're never going to win the long-term battle of being a sustainable organization in in the environment that we have to operate in yeah I'm so glad to hear you say that and to me as well before I pass the mic to Jen I think what that leaves me thinking is it's less about waiting to be invited to sit down at the table as just rocking up to that table grabbing the chair sitting yourself down and saying this is what matters now this is how we build and maintain and hone and nurture connection and community at work. And we're the, we're the professionals that are going to help you achieve that goal. And we're going to talk a bit about internal comms in, in, in a moment. But that point that you make, Kat, which is you can't wait to be invited. And I go to lots of conferences and lots of events with HR and internal comms people where they go, you know, you have a quote and they put their hand up and they go, oh, they just don't get it. They don't understand. You go, well, don't bloody work there then. You have a choice. Work in an environment where you can make a difference, where people take this stuff seriously. And if you, you are working in one of those organizations, try and change it. Try and step into it. Be brave. Be courageous. Challenge. Hold up the mirror. 
demonstrate the value that we create and great people management leadership creates. But don't, for God's sake, just sit there being a victim, saying it's all not very good and I can't change stuff. Yeah. Who do we choose to be? Spot on. And I think we've had that conversation quite a lot on the podcast as well. And some, some people saying, well, if you're a professional, be that professional. Stand up for something, say no to something, fight for something. That's what Seth Godin said, wasn't it? If you're a professional, you say often no sometimes more than yes. And, and Kevin, as you're saying that, I sort of smile along because that conversation does feel, and I've been in many of those rooms myself, and that conversation does, does feel very familiar. And there are some, inter- and this age-old debate of where internal comms sits in an organisation as well, who owns it, I'm like, does it matter? Does it matter? It's a, it's about, it's alignment. Um, and actually, you know, is it aligned to the right people in the right ways, do you think? Personally, as a people director, I'll always make a case to having people internal comms aligned to us or part of our structure and it does in my organization it does i've got external comms as well which is not really a natural thing for hr but it doesn't matter because it's about creating the right narrative the right messages it's using the right channels engaging people not and not telling i mean this is one of the things i'll talk about in a moment i'm sure i'm I'm very strong on we spend a lot of time in organizations communication means tell and i think it means listen you know, if you want to create a different environment, you've got to engage people. To engage them, you've got to listen to their views, give them a platform and give them the opportunity to tell you what's wrong and what should be different. And then you try, you know, I spend a lot of time going, you said, we did, you know, very simple. You've told us you didn't like that. You said the toilets were rubbish. The premises were crap. You didn't like the five day a week. So this is what we've done about it, right? And you keep doing that. And then all of a sudden, people are listening to me. I feel important. My voice is being heard and being listened to and actions being taken as a consequence of it. Absolutely, Kevin. And I know that was something we, we spoke so passionately about last year. And it, it is about plugging away and not giving up and keeping driving that forward and keeping that message going because it's those things that make people feel like they're valued. And sometimes I worry, as communicators, we go to the message before we go to the audience. And actually, the audience can dictate the message. And what was it somebody said to me when I, uh, when I was in a conversation that we were talking about what is internal comms there to do? We do what is needed, not what we are told to do or not just to send out messages. We listen and we do what is needed to create the right environment for people to flourish. And uh, I'm picking up on that and you know, on the things that you said. So from your view... And you talked earlier on in your career about how you've been involved in that transformational perspective and how actually it's about making change and making a difference. Look, the good news in our membership this year, they have put the number one skill they want to develop is around influencing, around driving that value because our opportunity has never been so strong. So from your perspective, if those people are in there with that right mindset, what role do you think communication plays in that successful business transformation, which is so huge right now? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think most organizations, you know, the environment, as we've talked about, is becoming, you know, it's more volatile. So organizations have to be more agile and responsive. So I think there's a, you know, organizations are having to adapt at pace. So I think that's the starting point and understanding, first of all, you know, you're professional. So you've got to bring the outside in. So I spend a lot of time with my HR community, my internal comms, understanding the market we operate in 
some of the changes that are going on with technology? What does the future look like? What could we be doing so that we can actually then start to craft our purpose and our strategy? You know, and that's what this is what's important to us, and this is where we're going. And for me, the people strategy is hugely important. You know, so in any organisation, any transformation, you're normally changing the ways that work gets done the mindset that people have about the organization that they work in and what's expected of them, and and actually what we expect of them in relation to other people as well. So for me, if you're going through a transformation, you have to start off with this is where we are and this is what we need to be. So you have to articulate that journey and you have to articulate the sorts of things you're going to need to change. And if culture is one of them, how we treat our people, how we behave around here, then internal comms has got a lot of important and big work to do to be able to do that. So for us, you know, we created a, a new purpose. We've created new values and the internal comms team have been leading on that with external consultants and my internal team. We've now turning that into, you know, what does our engagement strategy look like? I measure engagement every quarter, every office, because you've got to know whether this stuff is working and it's a way of listening again. So you need to do engagement stuff really regularly. And the other thing is you've got to be doing is holding up that, that, those data points to leaders. These are your people. You lead them. This is what they are saying to you, right? So that's an important part. So the people strategy is not delivered by internal comms and HR. It's delivered by line managers predominantly, often quite remote from the center. So you have to empower them. But first of all, you've got to have that measurement process. And I think, you know, so there's the, the narrative, the journey, describing where we are, where we, what we aspire to, our values, how we're going to behave around here, and then starting to think about how do we change things to be able to deliver that. So how you hire people, the training that's available for people, what comms channels we use to communicate. You know, this is a very big general, but comms people still send, seem to think a lot about the written word, right? And in lots of organizations, people don't read. The reading age, I learned this at Royal Mail 15 years ago. Our reading age was about nine, right? They couldn't even read the sun. So how do you communicate? Now, video is much more powerful, as is hearing and audio. So podcasts, videos, TikTok, social media, how do you use these channels to get your messages across, to create that understanding of the narrative and expectations that we're looking for? So I think there's a lot in what I've already said, but, you know, internal comms are central to be able to, to articulate a journey, to create a tone of voice and a way of talking, which is consistent with our values, and then putting range, a range of tools and processes that enable us to both listen and explain and occasionally tell. Well, I, yeah, I wanted to chip in and ask you, Kevin, your lived experience of undertaking engagement surveys. The reason why I'm really interested in this, so we had David McLeod on last year at some point. I don't think I'm paraphrasing or exaggerating to say that he was quite frustrated. Obviously, his work in 2008 went on to become the Engage for Success movement, and he wrote the Engaging for Success government report. He was quite vocal last year in his frustration that too many organisations 
did the survey work and then didn't follow up. And so that is my perception is you all too often you get organizations and they go, well, we have a, we use PECON, so we're on top of this. And it's like, yeah, but what are you doing with the data? So because you're the first person, I think, who's come on here, I would just love you to share with listeners when you see the quarterly engagement survey data that comes back to you, what do you do? This is what we do, and is what I ask our leaders to do. Yeah, so first thing is, is you've got to, there's a lots of things. So the, the engagement survey we use talks about emotions as well. So we understand engagement and empowerment and inclusion. So we measure those three things, 20 questions. But behind it is also a question about how people feel. So what I'm trying to work out, what I'm trying to work out is where are people are moving. It's movement that's important. Are we shifting views of the job, of the organization? and what's working and what's not. So in reality, the reason why I do it quarterly is because I'm looking for trends. And I want, you know, you don't go financial performance. Let's give everyone a budget once a year and hope they hit it. You give them regular information to see whether how they're doing about it because you have to make decisions every day. So we use it to be going, right, what seems to be working is, I don't know, we do frontline manager sessions that I was talking about to you earlier. You know, me and Jeanette, the uh, chief exec, do eight sessions every quarter where we just get all the frontline managers and they tell us what's going on and we tell them where we're up to. That seems to resonate with our frontline managers really, really well. And we know that they like that exchange. We've introduced a catch-up process, which is 20-minute conversations with our drivers and engineers. We took away a horrible performance management and we've had to do that. We've had to change our disciplinary process and we've had to change our customer complaints process to give frontline managers the time to have those conversations. So I can start to see how those things are beginning to work through the system. So you make lots of changes, but I've got to have a barometer to see how it's going and what's moving. And keep going. This is not something we do once a year and every two years and just forget it. And someone does an action plan and they never deliver it. This is a living, breathing experience that we're trying to shift. And that's why you have to do it regularly. You have to do it granular. You have to give people the data so that and keep saying, this is your data. Then you can do loads of things. So I do quite a bit of time where we get managers together and go, let's look at the league table. Why are all the people in these units having a great time and getting great experience and the people down here are having a terrible time, right? So you get the managers in a room and go, so tell us what you're doing and what, and you listen and understand. See if you, and they go, oh, yeah, we used to do that. We don't do that anymore. And we tried that and that doesn't work. You go, well, there you go then. It's learning. Yeah, that's so illuminating. I, I, I don't think we've had anybody on the podcast, have we, Jen, who's, who's talked out kind of the materiality of what what's at stake here I mean you know I always think oh god engagement has just become this really dry binary sterile more things to measure and nothing to, to, to actually interpret and improve it's like it get underneath it and the bit I love about the emotion so I can see what the drivers are so we've got two big negative drivers right one is unappreciated. So you can start to see why we're doing stuff like the catch-ups and we're engagement sessions and tea and toast sessions in all the depots. The other one is about uh, stress and anxiety and workload. And some of that is about our shift patterns. So I'm now working with TimeWise to really try in four or five of our depots to try and get a much more flexible approach to how we do rostering and shift patterns. And once I've, uh, we've learned from that, then we start to roll out. 
And again, it will be a response to what our people have told us, which is they like, you know, they're not getting work-life balance. We want to bring different type of people into the organization. They want to work flexibly. And it isn't just about location. It's about hours, days of week, fitting with other responsibilities. So so engagement for me is, uh, you know, I get excited. I spend a whole weekend sitting there just reading verbatim stuff, right, as well as looking at the data because you get so much from it and you can understand where your people are and then you think about what interventions do we need to make, what's resonating, what isn't resonating. And I'm talking about all of this, but we're doing a massive, you know, zero carbon transformation at the same time. We're spending $100 million a year on new buses and new infrastructure and electricity and hydrogen. So I've got all of that change going on as well as the people change, and we're doing work around customer and brand. And so you put the three things together, you can start to see how this organization is trying to radically change itself not just what it does and how it does it, but how it behaves towards its people and its customers. And I think it's that point as well, Kevin, is that, and I'm going back to it, is that we don't, engagement service, don't think of it as, sometimes they can be treated as a hygiene factor. Well, as long as we do that every year, then we'll just move on. But to being a true transformational organisation is baking that into the everyday practice and don't expect an end. We never, you'll get through this and then something will happen externally and then there'll be another change and it will keep going. And it's about something that, you know, I've tried to coin as a phrase as well is that return on emotion and actually the, the tacit way that that actually buys into to what we're looking for. And one thing I want to, I know I'm, I'm going to, one final question in a minute, but before then I wanted to pick on something else that I think we've spoken about as well is this topic of line managers and in our internal communicators have come to me. I think this is pre-pandemic. I'm going to say in all the time I've been here, connecting with remote workers, deskless offline workers. How do, and, and clearly, we always talk about line managers being critical, but is the line manager role being designed appropriately by organizations to be that connector? What's your experience of a, remote workers and how we make them feel, as you just talked about it. But how do we get past this, this line manager barrier that we seem to keep come up, coming up against? There's two things that I always talk about people, two things that you have to focus on, right? Most people's strategies, hire the right people. And we won't talk about that today. But then get great line managers, treat people well, right? So it's at the core of their job, right? Have we trained and invested in them? Have we given them the skills and capabilities? Most probably not. So we get a huge variance in terms of how people undertake this activity. But it's at the heart of everything. Because in reality, when people talk about remote workers, they often think about office workers, don't they? Sitting at home working in you know hybrid. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I've got nine and a half thousand bus drivers who we interact with about three to five minutes a day who are on the bus dealing with customers day in, day out. How do I communicate with them is really a challenge. They haven't even got an email address. They haven't got a work email address, right? So I'm having to use apps. I'm using podcasts. I'm using, I'm doing a briefing process. I'm putting all things in place, all of which is about, we've got to tell them a story. This is what's going to happen to you. We believe in professional bus drivers. This is what our expectation, this is the change. This is how we want you to behave. This is what we, now tell us what you think. What's working? What do you like? What do you not like? I had 40% turnover coming out of COVID. Every bus driver cost me £7,500 to train, right? So that was £25 million, boom, off the bottom line. So the, the people stuff, managers is like the, the biggest game in town. And so what internal cons and HR have to spend their time doing is educating, training, 
giving them tools, influencing, but getting them to do it and then show them the benefits. I keep saying this to people and somehow we miss this, which is if you do some of these things well, these are the results you get. Now, I can show that by depot because of my engagement. I can show engagement. I can show attrition. I can show absence. I can show productivity, right? I go, isn't it strange that we do the right things here, catch-ups and all that stuff I talked about. We get positive engagement. Absence goes down. Engage, you know, Absence goes down. Attrition goes down. And we get more productive. You get better business results. This is about self-interest. So we have to be able to prove that business case day in, day out. We're not telling you to do this thing because it's a nice thing to do. It's because it will make your business and you more successful. So we have to work on that role as educators and leaders to give people the skills and capabilities to be able to do this stuff. Absolutely. And like I say, that analogy, you have three to five minutes a day. And that, that just knowing that to get in front of people. And I think that's a challenge. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly in, a, in agreement with those things. And and one thing I keep saying as well is this point of data and metrics and all the things, stop looking at things in isolation, look at things holistically. Because when you map it all together, it tells the story of the value that you're adding. You know, an open rate isn't going to do that, but you combine that with an engagement score. You combine that with a sentiment. You combine that with an attrition rate. You combine that with costs. It's there. We just have to invest our time to pull that picture together and work collaboratively across our business. Yeah, and we've then got to be clear about what we're saying and be, strangely enough, talking to internal. Yeah. We've also then got yeah. to sell that message. You know, you've got to be able to win the argument. There's a third, a third, a third in any organization. A third of people just get it. They're with us. They believe in all this. They'll do it, and they'll be quite good at it. There's a third that don't believe in it, are going to struggle with it, and, and, and it's a, a problem. For me, it's always about the middle third. The middle third gives you the traction. If you can get the middle third who are a bit indifferent and not too sure but are prepared to give it a go, they give it a go, they start getting the results, all of a sudden you've got two-thirds of your leadership and management population behaving in the right way, using the tools that you've given them. Then the other ones get isolated. And they start to vote with their feet. This isn't the right place for me. And then you can bring in. And all of a sudden, you know, over a three to five year period, which is normally the period of a transformation, you change your management population quite significantly. Absolutely. And is it facts and stories together can be incredibly compelling? Absolutely spot on. Always about the narrative with some numbers. Absolutely. Oh, Kevin, so just to, to round off this this fascinating conversation for our listeners today, you know, what do you think is the opportunity for internal communicators? Think about what I've said. I mean, this is it. This is the golden moment for internal comms, right? This is their opportunity to shine, to add value, to do great work. You know, this is their, their moment to step forward and to step into the spotlight. But to do that, They've got to do some of the stuff we've talked about. You know, they've got to be confident. They've got to have the skills. They've got to work collaboratively. They've got to be brave and resilient and courageous because this stuff is not easy. It really isn't easy. To try and change an organization, how it behaves is is a big ask. But, boy, is it an exciting opportunity. So, for me, I think internal comms is is one of the key components of undertaking any kind of transformation. So, And as I said, most organizations are going through some kind of transformation as we speak. So your chance to be part of something which is much bigger than yourself, to create meaning, 
to create impact, to improve business performance is huge. And you've got so many more opportunities now. You think about some of the channels, you know, social media, apps, technology-based, you've got the old-fashioned stuff, you know, there's there's just so many different things that can be deployed, but you've got to be challenging of yourself and not just do the stuff you've always done. Because if you've done, you know, you do that, you'll get the same old results and we need different results and better results. So we've got to try stuff, but you've got to be prepared to foul. You know, I see a lot of professionals that don't, you know, we bring people up. There's only one answer. It's this, do these six things. Well, it's not like that. I believe in science, right? What's at the heart of science is experimentation. I've got a hypothesis, right? My hypothesis is if we do those 10 things, we're going to get some improvement. Now, I need to measure stuff. Go back to the measurement, engagement regularly. I'm going to do these three things. Let's see what happens. Well, that didn't work. That's I'm not sure about that, but that's been brilliant. Right, let's keep that one. Let's try these other three things. That's how we've got to work. It's got to be much more agile and, and experimental and you know, you can't just do stuff the way we've always done it. And actually, people get bored. So you have to keep finding new channels. The narrative may stay the same. The message may stay the same. But you've got to keep delivering it in as many imaginative ways as possible because people just get bored. Attention spans are, are short. Kevin, you said that beautifully. It's a wonderful way to, but I think what, the, the time is now, but be brave, step out, experiment, and you will stick with it and you'll see the value and you'll make a difference. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on today and, and sharing all of your tips and all of your advice. It's been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you as you've, as you've <laughs> gathered. So, um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, it is a wonderful opportunity. You know, I say to people say about, you know, young people, I go and talk at universities occasionally. I always talk about the human side of businesses because that's where all the value comes from. People are obsessed by the technology, but it's always about what's in between people's ears. It's the humans and it's the humans that make you feel like you're doing something really valuable. The technology never makes you feel the way a human does. And there's loads of little tips I like. So like just like today, we're doing these um, briefing sessions. Me and Jeanette spend a lot of time thanking people. Thank you for doing that. You're working brilliantly. Mm, this a is, simple thing, it isn't just it? It makes people, people <laughs> smile. It's like... So effective. Oh. Anyhow. Yeah. I will shut up. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Kevin, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you again. Cheers. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have... Please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.